This is Bonjour Hi, the Notes on Camp edition. I'm Avi Fangel in Montreal, along with Phoebe Maltbovi in Toronto, and manning the boards from the holy city of Jerusalem is Zach Kaufman. We are your frozen chosen. On today's show, we talk to Sandra Fox about summer camp and its legacy. Hint, it's more complicated than you think. And also, we dissect what's been going on in Israel, as well as academia. Plus, of course, amazing nachas as usual, and all our other usual stuff. Phoebe, what's new? Still don't have a kitchen. Otherwise, uh, you know, not much new. What about you, Avi? Uh, I'm doing all right. My, uh, I have kids at home. My wife's away in camp um, as camp rabbi at Camp Yavna in New Hampshire. Wonderful camp. Um, yeah, you know, it's just another summer. The Jazz Fest is on. We've been doing that, uh, going to shows, having fun. And uh, yeah, that's about it. Zach, Zach, you're in Israel. I'm in Israel. That's what's, true. What's, All the way what are you in Israel for? Well, there's so much to be in Israel for. <laughs> I am uh, chiefly there to study at the conservative yeshiva, which is big C conservative, meaning Jewish conservative movement. Um, it's an egalitarian yeshiva. And yeah, taking courses there in the afternoons and learning about... Uh, all different types of Talmud and and Jewish ethics. And the uh, program has a cohort of French people. There's Argentinians. There's sort of Jews from all around the world. And you're sort of in this international community um, uh, of people who are all find themselves in Jerusalem. That's great. Um, are, are you in tune with what's been going on lately? In, in Israel in general? No. So that's all. Uh, what's the sort of crazy thing, uh, like going off of what I just said, actually, um, is that I was in class all day. I was learning. I was talking about Torah. We were debating different ideas in Judaism. And I got a text from my parents being like, scary stuff, eh? And, and I had to look at the New York Times. I had to look at the uh, international press to find out what is going on. Um, and to summarize for anyone who might not know what's going on, uh, basically there was a big operation in northern West Bank city of Janine. And so there's Janine, the city. Um, and then beside that is Janine, the refugee camp, which uh, is populated by Palestinians who uh, left their homes Many in 1948, but there is this long-standing refugee camp that has grown over the past 70 years, uh, and that Janine had become a symbol of uh, sort of Palestinian resistance, Palestinian nationalism, and uh, have have been a uh, big base for. Uh, attacks on Jewish citizens, both within Israel and within the West Bank. Uh, and it's been a real rallying place. And the army went in for three days. They hit a lot of targets. Now the operation seems to be done. I know that it's quote unquote serious whenever I get an email from Federation updating me on what's going on. I got an email yesterday from Federation CJA that this is underway and uh, this has been, um, you know, resolved since. Uh, and so Israel has withdrawn from Janine and I don't want to spend too much time on this. I really won't dwell further. Um, but the thing that fascinates me is how 
um, there's this desperate need whenever I get an email like this to point out how much in the right Israel is. Israel did this by making sure that it was started after a Muslim holiday of aid. Israel did this specifically targeting uh, military targets. Israel does, is not interested in um, dealing with any um, uh, citizens, although sometimes people get caught up, but Palestinians actually put their things in there. And okay, very what's, so, and what's so disturbing about this? What I find remarkable and really unproductive is that this is not the way to go. You cannot go and say, we want a two-state solution. We want partners in peace. And yet we are really, really good at doing this. And the other side is always, always breaking the rules. We're such rule followers. We're careful. We want to defend our land, but this is not the way to do it. We are doing right things and they are not doing right things. When uh, uh, it's clear that there is more than just me sitting in Canada and uh, other Canadians that are Jewish and that are not and other people around the world that realize that there are two sides to this story, that it's it's a lot more complicated. And to perpetuate this idea that we are in the right, that we are sending you emails to let you know how right we are and how good this is, it's just not productive. I'm sorry. I think, like, what's the context of this email? The assumption of the email is there's this stuff happening in Israel. People are going to be looking to Jews to be accountable and to explain the actions of the Jewish state. And uh, they would like to equip Jews in Montreal with some answers. And you, you may not agree with those answers, but they... Uh, the context is like, there's something going on. There's going to be kids on college campuses criticizing. We need some language to... We need, uh, we need ammo. We need ammo to defend Israel, right? That's what it comes down to. And ultimately, the right answer in this situation is that it's complicated. But to say that something is complicated means to admit that in some way, there's culpability on both sides. Because if there's no culpability on one side, then it's not complicated. And what the, when you send out messaging, which is ammunition for people to go and say, no, Israel is right, is to go and tell, to arm people with the message that it's not complicated, that there is, Israel bears no responsibility ever. I don't know. I, I, I think that they are advocates. They are, they are advocates. They, they are academics. They are, they are not I don't disagree with that. And but they have deep responsibilities in terms of the messaging that the community receives from them. Anyways, I want to move on from this. Um, and Phoebe, you have been doing a lot of stuff on campus lately, not physically on campus, but <laughs> no. reporting on campus. Uh, this is not a 21 Jump Street situation uh, where you are going back to university. Uh, tell us what's been going on on campuses and why you think these are important things. Sure. So this is going to be a, a hard one to introduce because um, even though it's summer, even though it's sort of the quiet time on university campuses. Uh, it's a really huge one in the sort of news stories coming out of North American campuses that require our attention here at the Canadian Jewish News. And it can be, it's a little overwhelming because they are all different stories that we're, we'll see the thematic overlap in a minute. But so the one that I wrote about um, for the CJN this week has to do with a Jewish University of Toronto professor, um, a psychologist named uh, Yoel Inbar, uh, who, for reasons unrelated to his being Jewish and equally unrelated to his being in Canada, to my knowledge, um, seems like neither of these are relevant. They're only relevant in terms of we are the Canadian Jewish News. So we talk about it. Um, he applied for a partner hire position at UCLA, University of California, Los Angeles, um, which means that his partner um, 
has a job offer from there, but, and he wants to work there as well. So he can uh, be near her. Um, I, I know that the partner is a her because this is referred to um, in coverage of the story. Anyway, the point is um, he didn't get the job and why he didn't get it exactly it's not 100% clear, but the Chronicle of Higher Ed interviewed him and reported on the case. And basically, it seems as if it may have entered into it that a bunch of students signed an open that or not. Well, it was open because they publicly posted it. Basically, a letter saying that they didn't like what he had said, um, what Yoel Inbar had said on a 2018 podcast where he'd been critical of diversity statements, which is like a part, it's like a personal statement that you have to do on certain types of job applications um, to do with how you will promote diversity. Um, He was critical of these statements, not because he is critical of diversity, but because he does not think they further that goal necessarily, or that they're the best way to do that. He did not get this job and this became a big thing. Does this mean that he's um, the latest martyr to is he was he canceled? Was he the a martyr to the campus? Blah blah blah. Right. So this there's that story. Okay. However, there's also and I think in a lot of ways. Uh, so that story I found very frustrating. What I found very upsetting, however, was a story in uh, Waterloo where uh, a gender studies class was physically attacked, where the professor and Students were stabbed um, because it was a gender studies class, the police believe. So this also happened and also relates to campus speech. And then there was a similar story that did not culminate in violence, but certainly involved a lot of threats of violence from the University of Chicago, where um, a student publicized the fact that a professor was offering a course called The Problem of... sorry. The problem of whiteness and that professor, that lecturer rather, um, was in physical danger, they believed, and they had to like uh, first cancel the class, then reschedule it with a lot of security. So things are really complicated on the campus and speech front. Um, There's on the one hand, like a genuine concern about, you know, the chilling of speech from the left, but then there's a sort of genuine physical concern at times uh, with the chilling of speech from the right. Um, I don't think there are easy answers to any of this. I do, however, think there are many extremely Jewish questions we may ask about all of this. And I haven't even mentioned the fact that the U.S. Supreme Court made affirmative action illegal. You can't do it anymore, um, at least not the way it was happening. So that also, um, there are a few Jewish angles there too. It's no secret that there are attacks on free speech, both on the right and on the left. Um, when the left attacks free speech, they're doing it in the sake of this, you know, radical um, diversity and that that any sort of uh, critique of diversity is automatically an attack on uh, every minority that diversity is trying to raise up uh, when it is obviously not the case. And that when the left, that's when the left tries to attack free speech, when the right tries to attack free speech, it's because they, um, you know, are promoting their own values. And everybody's trying to promote values using free speech as a cudgel. Um, It's clear to me that free speech is not always um, a good thing. Um, There are limits to free speech. There are limits to free speech within Judaism, within Jewish thought. Um, And I'm a 
you know, I think that one has to be aware of that. One has to be thinking about those things. Sure. So I, one thing I wanted, so I, I want to try to bring this back in a more concrete way to some of these stories, because there are like really sort of glaring Jewish angles to a lot of them. So one is that this uh, course at the University of Chicago, that this student who, to be clear, was not a member of this class himself, he was not taking the class, he was he saw the title and was annoyed that it exists, this class, the problem of whiteness, is a part of the syllabus, uh, it, it, per the Times reporting, included readings like how did Jews become white folks by Karen Brodkin? So this whole um, whiteness studies, as it were, it, it is that like all these discussions that we have in the, in Jewish media, um, just Jews have, you know, wherever online and off about whiteness kind of come out of things like that, like that, that type of research. So this is a type of research that's now really, really under attack, um, sort of funding wise in the US especially um but also in this case perhaps more physically under attack um so that's one jewish angle i think we need to consider but the other is that this student at chicago um again per the times reporting on it uh it's uh, i'm just going to quote from the article over the last year or so he actively supported Kanye West the artist now known as Ye for president work that he promoted with Nick Fuentes a holocaust denier uh, Mr. Schmidt, that's a student, declined to comment on his political activism or his dealings with Mr. Fuentes. So that's interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what do you take from that, Phoebe? Do you take... Do you, yeah, I take a lot of things from that. So I should say that I went to the University of Chicago as an undergrad myself. I was active on the student newspaper where um, Mr. Schmidt was fired um, for being too much. <laughs> and um, I was the opinion editor there. Um, and I know very well what sort of political climate this is. Then what's sort of come out of this is that the student has been protected because of the University of Chicago's specific free speech policy. So he tweeted about this course, and I believe tweeted out the instructor's email address. And that led to this instructor getting really harassed online and getting, you know, threats of violence. So his, the student's speech is protected because he's, you know, allowed to, to post whatever he wants. But then you get this complicated situation where the professor or the instructor's speech is not necessarily quite so protected if she can't go and give her class. The, I feel like there is always this like flood of stories around this is the crazy cancellation that happened on college campuses. Um, my general, uh, my default reaction is often, you know, this is a, sort of a moral panic and everyone thinking the kids are not all right. Um, and I'm curious if you think that this kind of discourse keeping poking at um, these stories about cancellations on college campuses leads to that other terrible story of someone going into a university, um, probably having read on all types of far right-wing sites about these crazy college campuses where they're trying to convert the youth to, you know, communists and whatever. Um, how, how did those things interplay? One needs only to look to the two examples that happened in Canada, in Montreal, um, in the relatively 
recent past um, to know that that actually is what happens, yes, that people absolutely. get angry at women's studies, people get angry at gender studies, and they, they lash out and they lash out because of things that they hear. Um, yeah, I, I think that's absolutely true. But I really, really wanted to say that I think that the, there's a danger here in saying that because people do these sometimes violent acts, you know, against academic settings, that the answer that the takeaway from this is don't criticize academia, because somebody might go do something. And I think you can't have that you have to have that the you have to have priorities straight, which is to say that the main thing is that everybody's physically safe. And that there's no equation whatsoever between what happened with this UCLA situation and what happened in Waterloo. Obviously, what happened in Waterloo is far more concerning. It's terrifying. The idea that you'd be in a class and somebody has, you know, has a beef with gender studies, whatever that means. And that's something I go into in my Globe and Mail article about this because it's complicated. It's not straightforward exactly who this person hates because it could be a lot of people and it's not mutually exclusive categories, but, um, so you don't, so I, my, my thought was like, does it, does it make you feel, um, icky or, you know, do you have qualm? Do I think that? No, no, no. But when you write about, when you write about (laughs) like this, this complex topic that happened on a college campus, uh, is there a part of you that thinks like, Oh, this, some far right person might read this and, you know, um, and and take it as part of their ideology. You know, I've written about this at length and I don't want to overly like, you know, mm-hmm. cite myself while talking, but basically I think there's this loop that happens where there's a criticism from the from sort of a liberal perspective on the left being illiberal in some way and, you know, stifling speech on the left. What happens is the right will swoop in, and this is kind of how I tweeted about this, and the right will swoop in and decide that the way to help out is by curtailing speech of the left, right? And doing right-wing illiberalism. So do I think that having the sort of liberal position promoting speech, promoting the physical safety to have speech and to have vigorous debates verbally, you know, and not be stabbing people, um, do I think that that's somehow, no, I don't think that that's it at all. I think the problem is that you, you don't want to, I don't think ultimately that the right is upset about speech on the left for the same reason that, um, sort of liberals are, if that makes sense. I think people also pick up on all sorts of things. I was just reading a, a, a totally like side note that relates. I was reading a gender studies book for my own interest that um, some people on the right had picked up for sort of the wrong reasons. And the professor who wrote the book, um, it's a book about uh, female sexual fluidity um, that the professor who wrote it writes at length in the book about how people were taking what she wrote to be some sort of like claiming that anybody can choose their sexual orientation, thus conversion therapy is wonderful, which was not at all her point. So anyway, yes, every people, people's views about anything can be taken up by anybody else. I do not personally feel icky to use your word at all. No. 
so I'm going to I'm going to wrap this up. I think this has gone too far afield, but bring it back to Judaism and bring it back to Zachary, you right? You, you were talking about studying Talmud. You, you went to Israel to study Talmud for a month. I think one of the hallmarks and one of the reasons why Talmud has lasted for so long is because it preserves losing opinions, because both opinions, both sides are all or multiple sides are always recorded because one can learn. And the more you learn from the side that ultimately loses, I think the better off you are. And I think the stifling. Ultimately, what you're saying, Phoebe, is that the stifling of all of these types of conversations on I, on any side is basically saying, we win, this is our time to shine, and any other opinion needs to go away. And that's a problem. Um, and that's not good for discussion, for society, and that's not good, definitely, uh, for the Jewish people either. Uh, let's move on. Um, look, for many, many youth, uh, where summertime means summer camp, right? Many of them got shipped off to camp this week. Summer of fun, country, all of that good stuff. Uh, we want to get into this a little bit deeper. Um, there was a book that just came out recently, The Jews of Summer, Summer Camp and Jewish Culture in Post-War America. And uh, Sandra Fox, who is the author, is uh, going to be with us. Sandra is the Goldstein Gorin Visiting Assistant Professor of American Jewish History at NYU. And we caught up with her. And you should hear that interview right after we hear from our sponsor. Are you in the market for a new watch or a special piece of jewelry? Are you looking for the perfect engagement ring to pop the question? Atelier Lou has all this and more. Eric and the team at Atelier Lou can craft a piece for you, or you can select from some of the exclusive designers that they offer. From a simple bangle to a statement necklace, Atelier Lou can make you or your loved ones sparkle. Located in the heart of Westmount in Montreal or online at atelierlou.com, visit Atelier Lou for your next watch or jewelry purchase. And when you do, make sure to use promo code BON18 for 10% off your next purchase. That's atelierlou.com. Summertime is camp. I've sent one kid away to camp. I am sending two more kids for second session. Uh, Phoebe, do you have kids going off to camp? Not quite yet, right? Next week, my older daughter is starting at a day camp uh, here in Toronto, just the city run. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I mean, she's um, four. Yeah, she's not going to go to sleepaway camp. I don't th- I think she's a little young for some of the things that happen at sleepaway camp from what I've been reading about. Ever since this book came out back in March, we have wanted to have uh, its author on uh, just in time for camp to be able to talk about uh, Jewish summer camp. So uh, the book is called The Jews of Summer, Summer Camp and Jewish Culture in Postwar America. The author is Sandra Fox, and she is here with us today to talk about Jewish summer camp. Sandra, welcome to Bonjour Chai. Thank you for having me. Uh, so we have so many questions for you. Um, I'm very excited to talk with you. Um, so I want to start with a question about um, the non-academic, which is, did you go to Jewish summer camp? And or and if so, what was your experience? Yeah, I did go to Jewish summer camp. Um, I went to Young Judea summer camps, um, Camp Young Judea Sprout Lake in Verbank, New York, and then the senior leadership camp for teenagers, Tel Yehuda, which is a national camp in Barryville, New York. So I'm very much a product of the kinds of camps I studied, although on a very different, you know, at a very different time. So I feel like I had a lot of distance because I was looking at a period in which I wasn't even born. Mm-hmm. But my camp experience was overwhelmingly positive. Um, I made, you know, all of my best friends at camp. I developed my Jewish identity at camp. Um, I had a kind of rocky childhood, honestly, and camp was a really important, secure base for me from what was going on at home. Um, And so I love camp for all of those reasons. Um, 
But also I think that my desire to write this book was to unpack some of the the ideologies I absorbed as a child and understand, you know, how the Judaism I developed at camp came into being. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that that's super interesting and, and does uh, bring me to my next question, which is just how you landed on camp as your research area. So like where you're coming at this from as a historian, as a scholar, you know what I mean? Like how, how did you land on this? So I had a an interest when I entered my PhD program. This started as a as a PhD project. It's been a long time and has developed and changed a lot since then. But um, early on in my career as a young scholar, I was interested in the idea of studying the history of childhood and youth, and specifically thinking about young people as having um, active roles in their history, um, not just as passive uh, beings that adults kind of control or worry about or educate, but also as active um, in the making of culture or in the creation of um, history. And so I was thinking about what kinds of American Jewish history topics um, might hit on some of that, um, because that was sort of at the time an underdeveloped area in uh, the field. Um, I think in Jewish studies, there's a lot of focus on, um, you know, in, in terms of more contemporary stuff on leadership. But if you look back in history, I think also intellectual history is pretty common and thinking about, you know, the few people who have sort of the most power or the most um, say or access to a sort of megaphone. Um, And children, although they're not minorities, we're all children at some point, um, they are marginalized in a lot of ways. Their voices are not really given a lot of attention or care, or even, um, I think a lot of people don't even think about children as active makers of history and teenagers. So I wanted to find a topic that would allow me to look at, at at that. Um, and actually I avoided camp for a little while. I, I was looking at youth movements and different aspects of Jewish education. Um, because I was pretty young at the time, I was about 23 or 24 years old, and I wasn't that far away from working at camp. I think the last time I worked at camp, I was 22 as a sort of unit head. Um, and so I thought, maybe it's like too, a little too close, um, to my own life. Uh, but then, like I was saying before, with the historical distance from the subject, it, it really stopped feeling close to my own life at all. And I, I actually did not think a lot about my time at camp while researching or writing this book, I, the remove the removal happened very naturally. Mm-hmm. I think it, it, my experiences at camp helped me think about some things about how camp time works, um, which is one of the chapters. It's about how camp leaders constructed time to kind of give over their ideologies to children. That definitely was something I had a felt experience that helped me um, research that. But past that, I was able to create that distance. And so I got more confident about writing about this topic over time um, and then also got older, <laughs> you know, and, oh, that's, and that's, that's 10 years ago. So. Oh, that's great. I, I'm, I'm so glad you're writing about this because this is really fascinating. And yeah, I, I share some others uh, disbelief that this hadn't been done before. It's it's really pertinent. Um, but I, what well, I there really had been some, dive, there yeah. had been some stuff before. I want to I want to clarify. Okay. There definitely had been some stuff. I really want to dive in though to this question um, of the hookup culture of Jewish summer camp because you write about this, and I've found it fascinating what you've written about this. But for those who have not yet read you on this. What, what what is it and where did it come from? So that was one of the topics I wasn't sure I was going to cover because I didn't know what the archives would have for me, what Jewish camp archives would have for me on that subject. I 
also was really concerned when I was younger about being taken seriously as a scholar. And I, I worried that this would kind of disqualify me somehow. But I kept finding little bits and pieces that alluded to camper culture, specifically around romance and sexuality. And, you know, as I was saying before, kind of as I got older and more um, confident in my own research uh, approaches, I realized that that was one of the hearts of the book, not just romance and sexuality, but camper culture, this idea of how youth reacted to and shaped um, camp life and then how they shaped American Jewish life in that process. Um, and so, you know, in terms of hookup culture, I was personally curious as a product of a Jewish summer camp um, and youth movement in the kind of aftermath of this big um, Jewish population survey, 1990, there was a Jewish population survey that really freaked out, at least the, I think it also definitely freaked out the Canadian Jewish community, but perhaps a little bit less. It was more about the United States and intermarriage. Um, and so growing up in the aftermath of that, um, a lot of my experiences at camp were shaped by the continuity crisis. I mean, in retrospect, I don't think I understood that uh, clearly when I was younger, although I think by my high school years, I understood that a lot of the reasons why we were being allowed to hook up and, um, and that talking talk of hooking up was so common and, you know, overheard by staff with no problem whatsoever, that that was related to this intermarriage anxiety. Um, and I basically want to understand when did that start? Where did that come from? What was camp or hookup culture like? predating the continuity crisis. Um, and so, like I said, the archives did have bits and pieces, but I really had to do oral history to get to the heart of that. Um, so I interviewed over 30 former campers from across the decades. I also made efforts to speak to people who later came out of the closet. No one I spoke to, no one I, no one even knew anyone, honestly, in the post-war decades, kind of the 40s through even the mid-70s, who was out at camp or, um, you know, at least out by their own volition. Um, mm -hmm. But that's still, you know, of course, being closeted at camp would also shape their experiences of kind of this mm -hmm. compulsory, compulsory heterosexuality. Um, so I set about talking to people and asking them about their experiences at camp, pairing that with archival research and also just a broader understanding on my end about the sexual revolution, both before and after. So what did teenage sexual culture actually look like before the sexual revolution? How different was it during and afterwards? I thought I would find from reading about that from brilliant scholars who've done books on that topic, that the sexual revolution was this, you know, huge turning point that essentially our grandparents generation, you know, at least my grandparents generation, uh, who got married in the early 1950s would have stayed completely, you know, complete virgins until marriage. Um, you know, perhaps a little bit of necking, quote unquote, which I assume, you know, I kind of assumed always was just making out, uh, but that was it. Um, but what I learned from the research that exists out there, really interesting books, um, is that actually the difference really between pre and post sex revolution wasn't so much the actions that kids or teenagers were doing, but how they talked about it, how publicly they talked about it. So that in the 40s, um, campers were hooking up. But it just wasn't something that was talked about, uh, 
quite as loudly or explicitly as it was later. And that totally tracked with both the archival sources I found, which were a little bit more subdued. There definitely were references to boys and girls and and romance and sexuality to some degree from the 40s and the 50s, but it really explodes in the 60s and beyond. Um, but when I spoke to former campers, I found out that actually the the hooking up that was happening was not that different from mm-hmm. the 40s through the 70s, which is really interesting. Um, so that's a little bit about, you know, teenage sexual behavior in history. And then what I wanted to understand was when did... American Jewish concerns over rising rates of interfaith marriage start to intersect with that hookup culture. I want to be clear, campers came to camp wanting to hook up as is, you know, completely normal, unexpected. They are, you know, pubescent or post-pubescent and desiring of those relationships. There's nothing specifically Jewish about that. But how those sort of natural interests intersected with the anxieties of staff members um, or directors or philanthropists or rabbis is where that interesting kind of, I don't want to say tension, but a sort of interesting dance occurs, you know, to to, to take language from uh, the camp romance, right? Going to the Mm -hmm. dance. Um, And so what I found really is that as rates of interfaith marriage uh, rose in America and as American Jewish leaders were kind of waxing, waxing poetic about their concerns about that, um, the culture of summer camps around hooking up became sort of more explicitly connected to that, to that mission and also pretty loose um, in a lot of cases, pretty loose. And, and, you know, I've spoken to people who study Christian summer camping and that is not, there's no parallel there. I'm not saying that they're, you know, at secular summer camps, kids don't hook up. Absolutely. They do. But the tacit, sometimes explicit permission to do so or creating time in the schedules to do so seems pretty unique to um, Jewish mm-hmm. summer camps. So if I can just um, make this more explicit for the people that aren't make, putting the pieces together, the assumption was that if the intermarriage problem uh, was growing and it was going to be a, an issue, then the way to combat it is to get people in summer camp to hook up with other Jews and thereby imprint in their like lives and have relationships start in summer camp. So let's let them sleep around in summer camp or at least fool around in summer camp um, so that by the time they grow up and get ready to get married, they're wanting to marry and uh, have children with other Jews. Right. They're taking okay. the, the, the totally normal interests okay. of children and, and sort of um, harnessing it for those needs. What I was going to say is this just um, makes me think of just the general sort of um, early 2000s, at least that's when I remember it, culture of American Judaism and, and 90s even like so I went to a girls school in Manhattan, but went to a co-ed Hebrew school where I feel like there was a lot of emphasis in Hebrew school of like, that's the place where I could find a boyfriend, you know, and obviously I'm, you know, in fifth grade married off to it. No. Um, but then also just like the way Jewish events were always presented as a singles event at that time, you know, like for young adults or even maybe not so young adults, always, it was always about singles, which does then, yeah, get to this. So it's just interesting how summer camp like fits in with this bigger picture. And I mean, it's, it's strange in some ways, because like you say, teenagers who would have been discouraged in general from hooking up being encouraged is different, but it, but though it does really fit with like how it seemed to be going in American Judaism at that time. Um, but yes, yeah, so I think now is when we do have to talk about birthright, um, which seems to really, um, 
it's not just like me hypothesizing. I mean, it explicitly is about um, getting couples to form, right? In very much the same way for the same, you know, make Jewish babies imperative. That's what they literally said on my birthright trip was make Jewish babies. Um, And yeah, I mean, I guess what I wanted to talk about, and I don't know um, how relevant this will be since your book is about an earlier period, but there's been this Me Too sort of post me to critique of all of that, right. Of the sort of make Jewish babies and, and feminist pre sort of even like to some extent predating this. Um, I'm thinking both of people like Stephen Cohen and Michael Steinhardt getting specifically personally in trouble for various things. But I was just wondering, um, do you know if there's been any kind of rethinking of um, the hookup imperative, either from that angle or from like you say um, the fact that, there's growing understanding that not everybody is straight. Yeah, absolutely. Camps are changing really rapidly. Um, so starting around Me Too in 2017, um, I might, it might have even predated that. Honestly, I would have to check. But there were, there's a group called Jewish Teens for Empowered Consent that is filled with, you know, current and former uh, summer campers and youth group leaders, mostly women, talking about um, the pressures they felt at camp to hook up and sort of the dark side of all of this. You know, uh, my experience at camp was one where I think I, I experienced most of it as positive and most of it as sort of, um, yeah, sex, a sex positive atmosphere. Mm-hmm. But when I look at it now, I do understand that there was a lot of pressure on us to hook up that that was like, if, if you didn't hook up that summer, you had failed. You were like an outcast. I mean, this was maybe more in our own minds, but that was how it felt. Um, a lot of youth groups, including mine, um, which was connected to my summer camp have these sort of unofficial, but very real hookup point systems so that, you know, your position on young Judea or USY or um, a nifty board maybe not nifty, but I'll say, I think BBYO has this correlates with your, um, how much you're worth. So if someone hooks up with you, they get 10 points or they get five points, or they get one point. Um, and so these teens really brought up the, the obvious ways in that, in which that parallels some of the things that were going up, going on in the adult world when it comes to power dynamics and sexuality and pressure, um, mm-hmm. harassment, and even rape culture. I mean, they use the words rape culture. So, that was a big wake up call to Jewish camping and Jewish youth movements. And I think things, I mean, I'm not a specialist on what's going on right now, but from what I understand, things have changed a lot. There are a lot of different initiatives, at least in the U S but I'm sure they're also honestly connected to the Canadian camps too. Now that are focused on making camps feel safer and like less pressurized environments for, for teens. Do you think any of it also relates to the fact that maybe continuity is less central to the conversation than perhaps like fighting anti-Semitism or whatever. It seems like maybe concerns, maybe like, do you think there's still a continuity crisis discourse going? Um, Yeah, yeah? I do. Okay. I think what's changed is that the Jewish community in North America has seen that a lot of interfaith couples choose Judaism, choose to raise their kids Jewishly or, you know, spouses convert. I don't know the numbers, but I think that if I look at the history of the continuity crisis, it's very obvious that when, um, interfaith marriages started to rise, people could not believe that those those couples would choose Judaism. Now we kind of see that oftentimes they do and that this maybe isn't such a big problem at all for the raising of Jewish children. So maybe what's happening is that the 
the crisis is no longer quite as dire in the minds of the, you know, uh, North American Jewish leadership, but still hammering home. I think it's there's still a strong preference towards in marriage among Jewish leaders. And certainly the idea would be that, okay, if you're not going to marry a fellow Jew, at least let's make sure that the um, the Kool-Aid camp is so good that you're going to raise your kids Jewish. Mm-hmm. On that note, though, one of the, I'm not going to say success stories, but one of the relative less failures um, in the continuity crisis is the Orthodox community. Um, and we haven't really spoken about Orthodox summer camps um, much lately. And I was wondering if um, what you saw in terms of differences, like I know that the hookup culture doesn't exist in the Orthodox summer camps, but the Shabbos walk exists, which is like the the more chaste version of that. And um, I was wondering what, uh, what you've learned, right, about the differences between those two types of camps. I mean, I think that the differences are, you know, fairly clear. They One, they don't have a, a concern as much about interfaith marriage. The rates of that are extremely low among Orthodox Jews. Um, and they have, uh, Orthodox Jews have values around tzniyaskite, uh, modesty, um, uh, you know, sh- being shomer nagia even in some cases. So I think that what's interesting about the Shabbos walk is that it acknowledges that there's romantic potential at camp, but it also structures it in a very safe and non-sexual way. Maybe for Phoebe, who probably doesn't know what a Shabbos walk is. I think that, do you know what? I I think I've, I've seen it and I've seen it in like Prospect Park. It's like it's taking a It's a very walk? specific camp phenomenon. Or is it? Oh, okay. Yeah. I haven't seen it then. <laughs> yeah, it's basically a camp phenomenon where there's a moment for people to couple off and take this walk together in this romantic way. Um, yeah. Shabbos uh, I'm picturing like a parasol. I'm picturing it being like in it full often involves, sort of period garb, but I'm It sure often involves not. a Friday afternoon, like pre-Shabbos, like Shabbatogram, where you ask somebody for a Shabbat walk. Okay, that was going to be my next question is how does it, how does the coupling off work in the... I, I, I so to be fair, I don't know because this. I I don't like camp. I went to two different summer camps <laughs> for two different summers, and neither of them really like worked for me. So I'm one of those, Sandra, that you're like, ah, uh, you're like, you're my nemesis. No, um, I I actually I'm like non camp people. I'm friends with a lot of non camp people. I, I'm I'm in a house with four other camp people. My my wife was a division head, and my kid now went to that camp, and I have uh, she's camp rabbi, and my kids are going to the other camps. Anyways, so like. You know, we had recently on uh, Rabbi Robin Fryer Bodzin, um, and we were talking about the uh, dearth of uh, rabbis coming up through uh, JTS specifically um, because she knows about that. And it strikes me the way you're talking about this is that camps were often the breeding grounds, no, no pun intended, <laughs> for future professional Jews, right? That the Ramaz were the minor leagues for people who were going to be spotted and saying, hey, maybe you should think about going to the seminary. And that doesn't seem to be happening anymore. My other question along those lines was about how much of the um, Jewish life, right, Jewish living, Jewish ideas um, got imprinted and gets further imprinted today in Jewish camps. Um, And if you can, if you have any thoughts or ideas about that. Yeah, I think that the way that camps teach kids how to be Jewish is through living. So it's it's not, this is what Jewish life is. It's let's live Jewishly for whatever amount of time that is. You know, now sessions actually tend to be, I think, shorter or there are more short options. But in the period I was studying, at least four weeks, you know, four to eight weeks, let's live Jewishly. And what does it mean to live Jewishly? Well, that depends. So my book looks at a pretty wide array of different kinds of Jewish summer camps. Um, Zionist summer camps of various types, 
um, reform summer camps, conservative summer camps, and um, the Yiddish oriented summer camps, which is the one which are the ones that people I think know the least about. Um, and so what they meant by live Jewishly meant very different things. Um, but it was embedded in the everyday schedule in the way that they shaped the week with with Shabbat or Shabbos at the end. Um, and in the sort of holidays or special camp days that they incorporated. Um, so what does like living Jewishly mean? It could mean you wake up in the morning and at some camps, maybe you first raise a flag that might could be the, you know, American flag, the Canadian flag and an Israeli flag, or maybe it's not an Israeli flag because you're a Yiddish oriented summer camp and Israel's not really at the center of your kind of ideological or educational agenda. Um, some camps prayed in the morning as a way of modeling what living Jewishly could look like, but many camps did not pray um, because they were presenting secular alternatives to traditional Judaism. Um, and then, you know, educational activities in the morning often would really hammer home what the camp's purpose was um, through usually informal or experiential means speaking Yiddish or Hebrew in some way, kind of engaging with those languages, even not in a fluent way, but just sort of in a um, a symbolic manner with the places around camp or the group names being in those languages, the activities being in those languages. All of these ways are modeling what kind of an authentic, quote unquote, Jewish life could look like. Um, and crucially, they're, they're usually very different than how uh, Jewish children experience Judaism at home, where... Um, doing Jewish is going to Hebrew school or going to synagogue. And it's, you know, obviously different for Orthodox kids, but for most other um, Jewish kids from the more progressive denominations, that's where Judaism lives. And it doesn't necessarily intersect with life in any other way. Um, so camp is really, I think this continues to be the case that what camps do is try to immerse children in Jewish life. Um, and that looks like a lot of different things. Can I ask a question about something else, which is uh, the sort of socioeconomics of Jewish summer camp? Because, I mean, I'm just thinking, like, I know in my own family that people went to, like, a sort of very low cost, if not free, Jewish summer camp um, back in the day. And I realized, like, digging into my memory that I think I even know one of the songs from it, um, but I'm not going to start singing. But what, like, is it expensive to go to Jewish summer camp? Um, has it always been? Okay. <laughs> Well, no, I'm, I'm asking. I'm not asking from ignorance, Avi. I'm asking for I'm to get an answer. Um, yeah, yeah. I think going to Jewish camp is really expensive. I think it's getting more and more expensive. And how does I it think, compare to other summer camp? I mean, I think it compares. Okay, the way that it's more expensive than other summer camps, and this is changing though, is that Jews tended to go to camp longer than mm. most other groups of people. So. In a lot of the Christian denominations, camp is a weekend or a week or maybe two weeks. But the typical Jewish camp session has historically been four weeks. And often, you know, in previous, not now, but in earlier decades, people often went for eight weeks because it was more affordable, achievable. Camps have gotten across the board more expensive for all sorts of reasons, like really expensive insurance. Um, right now, obviously, inflation with food and everything, it's got to be. It's got to be tough to be running camps right now, and it's got to be tough to be a parent who has to afford camp. I think a lot of Jewish summer camps are now shortening their sessions, and there's, I think, two reasons for that. One is that um, especially teenagers are pulled in so many directions to be you know, better for their college applications. Um, so it's no longer 
obvious to Jewish families to send their kids to camp for four to eight weeks if they feel they have to also do some sort of summer program to really make that application shine. That really depresses me, but this is this is the world, at least in the United States. Um, and I think also the price is a reason. Um, you know, millennials, we're not there yet with having big children, but we are, I think, downwardly mobile from our parents. So I think one of the biggest challenges that... Um, Jewish summer camps will face soon is that a lot of people that would love to send their kids to camp won't be able to afford at least not as long of a time to send their kids Mm -hmm. to camp. Um, And I'm sure that something will happen philanthropically to help with that, but it's, that's a real challenge. Um, So camps have used to be less expensive. They used to be more achievable or uh, reachable for, for a lot of Jewish families, especially in the post-war uh, era, at least in the United States, there was really a post-war economic boom and Jews were were entering the middle class in droves. And this was something really something that they could reach. Um, and even though I, Jews are still doing pretty well socioeconomically uh, in comparison to many other groups in the United States, I think that the cost of camps just get higher on top of that, the cost of college and everything that you have to plan for. So I think this is actually a crisis that's if not already here, it's got to be coming. Mm-hmm. But I think part of it also is that like there's um, increasing need to market and to show that you are a better camp than the other camps, that you have better alternatives. Um, you know, they're putting up these elaborate inflatable water slides at the beachfront they're putting um my my daughter is in the upper division now in camp and she's going for the full session which means she has two overnight trips and these are not overnight trips camping these are overnight urban trips so she goes to like boston from the poconos for two days and that's part of summer camp and like because they feel like they need to give these kids experiences and there's traveling camps where they go off to europe so like well at least we'll give you a couple of overnight trips like that right and then that just jacks up the cost um it's inevitable well then that's Toronto going on city day camp will, is a little uh they go to the the local playground where there's um some sprinklers um but yeah. i wanted to before we i, I don't want to have missed this question which is people who hated camp why did they? So Avi mentions having not been a big fan of camp. I went to Camp Ramah for one summer when I was eight and did not. And while I enjoyed other camps, I went secular camps I went to later. I did not particularly enjoy that for reasons I will not get into. Um, or I could, but whatever. Um, but my question for you is of the people you spoke with who did not like camp. Why not? I had a lot of trouble finding people who don't like camp okay. because if because I had to find people who <laughs> I had to find former campers and the best way to do that was to network through alumni Facebook groups and so that was one of the things that I was um, unhappy about with doing oral history was that I was going to get the bias of people who are pretty into camp because they're still in the alumni Facebook group or they're pretty active um, and happy to talk to me. I did some outreach like, hey, do you have a parent who was ambivalent about camp? Just trying to get people's ambivalences. Uh, but that was really challenging. Um, I think that camp uh, is just not for everyone. I don't know. I think that there's this widespread idea of like camp people and not camp people. And maybe there's some personality type thing there of, you know, people who like every hour of their day to be planned for them. Um, Some kids really thrive in that and some kids don't and they want their, they want freedom and they want to just be able to hang out and, you know, read a book. Um, And so I, I don't know. I think that one of the challenges really was capturing the kid who didn't, who didn't like camp. Some places that I was able to find, kids that at least 
struggled with camp were camper evaluations, but those were written from the perspective of adults saying, oh, this camper was not suited for camp because they didn't cooperate. Well, like, did they not cooperate because they were just a quote unquote bad camper or did they like hate the program? Um, (laughs) So I think I try, I did my best to bring out um, what being a kind of ambivalent camper could look like, but challenging. Mm-hmm. I, I can find you lots of people because maybe we have the Facebook groups for the people who didn't like camp. Uh, if I, <laughs> we should have them, but we don't. I think a, a lot of what you said is true as somebody who didn't like camp. I also, I'm very urban um, and I didn't like showering in these mm-hmm. like, you know, less than ideal conditions and the sand and in your bunk and the sand in your bed and the eating on other people's schedules, what you didn't get a choice to eat. It, like I, I probably wouldn't do well in the army either. Um, I just, I don't know. Like there are people that want to be in the city and want, like you said, want have their own time um and there are people that don't mind uh being scheduled or being told what to eat and being told that this is going to be good for you and go for it and that just wasn't me and i think that there are a lot of people like that um they're just yeah um awesome well sandra this was wonderful it's a lot of fun if you don't like camp you probably like reading and if you like reading then you should read about summer camp so um check out the jews of summer summer camps and jewish culture in post-war america sandra thanks you so much for being on Moshe high this was great thanks for having me And now it's time of the show for our nachas. Phoebe, what's your nachas this week? Okay, so my nachas is going to be very unseasonal because it's going to be a very online one. I was recently invited onto the Blue Sky alternative to Twitter because Twitter has ceased kind of functioning for a while. It said that you could only, like Elon Musk decided that you could only look at certain number of tweets, like 600 tweets unless you pay, and then you could look at 6,000 tweets. But anyway... The site stopped working, so I went on the alternative to Twitter called the Blue Sky, and I'm sorting that out. And my, I don't know if it's a recommendation or a sort of don't be like me, folks. Uh, I now check two versions of Twitter, and it's so terrible. Um, but, you know, it's too hot to go outside here today, so I'll be inside checking two different firms of Twitter. How about Avi and Zach? I'm going to say this is an office. Although it is in the future by half an hour, but I do expect it to be the highlight of my week. Um, hopefully, I'm going to this Jewish singing event with um, Avi in a previous podcast. He uh, named for his nachis this uh, new album by the Raza singing group uh, led by Hani Raskin, who is this amazing um, a woman bringing Hasidic melodies um, to the wider world, sung by women. So I'm about to go to a concert, uh, sing along with her um, in the next few minutes at the conservative yeshiva. And I think it'll be a really uh, spiritual and uh, deep experience. <laughs> Zach, I have been out nachast. I should just Race, please, please cut my nachos. It is, it is not thematically in keeping with this program, whereas yours, I think, could not be more so, Zach. I am that incredibly jealous. What I am incredibly I jealous. Oh, oh, sorry. I, I, and I would like a second nachos. My second nachos will be um, for anyone to re-listen to our uh, the other podcast that will share that shares the name of our podcast, Notes on Camp from This American Life. Uh, one of their best episodes, 
with a lot of segments on Jewish summer camp. Um, that is a second nachis. You should also all listen to that. Avi, what is your nachis? I can't figure out. Would Ira Glass, would Ira Glass make for the best ever summer camp counselor or the worst the ever worst. summer camp counselor? I could see him as like the head of a camp, you know, like speaking in a way to kind of rev everybody Perhaps. up. But yeah. No, he's not. He's not rah-rah. He's the no? opposite. Uh, I would like to send my nachas to the woman standing next to me at the Ibrahim Alouf concert at the Montreal International Jazz Festival last week. This is a Quebecois woman, at least based from her accent and uh, the way she was talking to her friend. Had a few tattoos, and I happened to notice that one of them was in Hebrew. Upon closer inspection, said tattoo was the Hebrew letters Chet Vav Mem Vav Samach. Zachary, what does that spell? Hummus. Yeah. Yes. Hummus. <laughs> I'll tell you an interesting now, thing about hummus. Did you know that that's just how you say chickpea? When you buy a can of chickpeas, they call them hummus. Hummus shalem, a full chickpea. Correct. Yes. Mind yes. blown when I learned that. Um, no, but that's actually like of genuine practical. I need to know yes. this because my daughter's allergic to sesame, but not chickpea. So I'm going to need to know that if we're ever in Israel, that she, cause she so, can have the, the hummus, but not the hummus. That'll, that won't be confusing. So woman with a hummus tattoo. I was not going to approach this person and ask her about it because that is not what one does, especially not in 2023. Instead, I immediately started conjecturing in my own head, right? So either she really got taken for a ride by an that was my tattoo theory. artist. That was my right? theory. I want credit yes, for this theory, Avi. You should know this is a thing. One okay, should check out. Yes, you go, yes. go to badhebrew.com. There are, it hasn't yes. been updated in like six years, but there are many, many examples of Hebrew tattoos that have gone terribly wrong. Or else she really liked hummus. And either case, I didn't necessarily need to um, deal with it. And that was that. Or so I thought. I get home and I cannot stop thinking about this. And to the internet I go and I find out that hummus tattoos are apparently a thing. What? Uh, yes. So I find out that Joey King, who is an up-and-coming star, got a hummus tattoo in Tel Aviv back in May. Um, I find a tattoo from four years ago with like a Cook's Illustrated style drawing of a hummus recipe. There's like four drawings. of There's a drawing of lemons and then chickpeas, then pepper and then garlic. And there's an interview with like Mira Gonzalez, who's a poet from back in 2017, where she talks about her hummus tattoo. There's a lot of hummus tattoos on the internet. And this is a thing. And so... Um, my uh, nachas goes out to this woman for not standing alone and saying, I love hummus so much, but I'm following a trend and I'm becoming one of the hummus tattoo people. More power to you. I think it's bizarre, but go for it. <laughs> Zachary, enjoy the music. Thank Phoebe, you. this was wonderful as always. Thanks. And Zach, please keep your eye out for any uh, hummus tattoos in Jerusalem. I will. Yeah, I will. We will, I, know. We will want to be the first to hear it. I will tweet out a picture of my lower back if I, if I get one. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Bonjour Chai for the week ending July 8th, Shabbat Parashat Pinchas. The show is produced and edited by Zach Hoffman. The executive producer for CJN Podcast is Michael Freeman. Our music is by So Called. We are a project of the Jewish Living Lab and are distributed by the CJN Podcast Network. You can listen to all our past episodes on our page at thecjn.ca slash bonjour, and you can subscribe to the podcast and automatically receive all episodes on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We would love it, of course, if you told a friend about Bonjour Chai. It is one of the best ways we get new listeners. As always, you can email us with comments at bonjour at thecjn.ca. Thank you.